If you brought your copy of God's Word with you, you might, you might find one under the chair around you, perhaps. Um, we're going to continue in our study of Matthew's Gospel, picking up this morning in chapter 9, verse 18. <laughs> and as we get into Matthew this morning, uh, Gospel... We're in a section here in chapters 8 and 9, which is a large section of miraculous things that Jesus has done in his ministry during the time, a short span it seems, within the course of his ministry that Matthew has pulled out some uh, very forceful aspects of the power of Christ. And it seems it was written specifically for us for that purpose, to see the nature, the force, and the breadth of Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing ministry. And it says that he did this in all the cities and in all the villages and synagogues in Israel and in the surrounding regions. So this wasn't something that was just done in a corner. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's known as being the, the miracle worker. His Days are very full, and people continue coming to him and pressing in on him for the purpose of being healed. Once you become known as the miracle worker, uh, your, your working hours are not nine to five. If you demonstrate and possess the ability to genuinely heal people as Jesus did, and we're talking about very instantaneous, miraculous miracles, um, People were coming to him at all hours of the night. You remember several in chapter 8, he, they, he got his disciples to go to the other side of the sea in order to get away from the crowd, the throng of people who were pressing in on him even, even late into that very evening. And these miracles are for the purpose, obviously, of authenticating both his person as being the Messiah, the one that was sent from God, from heaven, in fulfillment of Old Testament passages. But we also hear in his voice this new message, this preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, that the new lawgiver, Jesus Christ, is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And thus, when we get to the uh, Great Commission, the thing that we're told to do in the process of making disciples is to teach people to learn what Jesus taught and then to obey him. We're to have obedience to him because he is a, a master and we are his, his servants. He's the Lord and we recognize that he has words of life. Have, have any of you ever got to the point where you're kind of at the end of your own rope? You've, you've tried to make life work from your own wisdom, your own resources, the own makings of your hands, and you get to a place where you realize it's not working? Okay, I'll be the first been there, done that, more than once, unfortunately, hate to say, but the reality is, is that our intuition sometimes kicks in and takes over, and we try to logically figure out how to solve things, and one of the beautiful things we're going to see in our passages to, is today is that in these demonstrations of, of who Jesus is, we need our hearts to be trained to the very purpose of when we reach the end of our rope, just reach out to Jesus. And hold on tight. And in the process of life, in learning that, in learning that all we need do is reach out to Jesus. Look into the word of God. What has he said? What does the word say? How can we better conform our lives into this instead of according to our human logic that has left us empty? And we continue to do that in our sojourning over and over and over again to where eventually, <laughs> the good Lord willing, 
we've learned enough times through the, the heartaches of life and we stop trying to, to lean on our own resources and immediately we fall to Jesus. Such things that we see in chapters 8 and 9 ought to solidify for us the reality that we have no one else to go to but Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through him. He has resources that are beyond our imagination because he's God. And he's gonna, we see him here doing things that only God can do. Remember the, uh, the voice uh, from heaven? It uh, kind of narrows our options. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you've got to make a decision about who you believe Jesus to be. The voice from heaven kind of narrowed our options here, didn't it? Uh, there was a voice out of the heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, the, the voice of God from heaven kind of narrows us and, and, and hedges us in so that if we hedge against this bet, I, I, I hate to say it, but all bets are off at that point. And we see this empirically. We have so much empirical data as humans on planet Earth of what life looks like when we try to create our own sense of morality, our own understanding of how things are supposed to go, and that if I were God, we would do it like this, so clearly that's the way God wants it done. No. God's Son came from heaven to earth to show us the way. And man, these miraculous, uh, power that we see in these two chapters are authenticating signs for us to be convinced more than ever that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now think about this. In these two chapters, what have we seen so far? Well, we see that Jesus cleansed a leper. Um, that's a, instantaneously. Jesus healed the centurion's servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law from her illness. He calmed winds and waves on the sea as they were crossing to the other side. He healed a paralytic man as proof of his authority also to forgive sin, not just to, they, he had already demonstrated he had miraculous powers, but then he came into this paralytic and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Blasphemous. How could he say such a thing? Well, in order that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, it, pick up your pallet and walk. And the man gets up and he walks in demonstration of his authority to do such a thing as even to forgive sins. And Jesus also heals Matthew. We sometimes don't maybe think of this as being one of the miraculous things that we see in chapters 8 and 9, but Jesus heals Matthew from his condition of unbelief. Almost, in, again, instantaneously. Follow me. Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. And we see throughout the course of, the, of his gospel and through the New Testament, Matthew never turned away from following after Jesus. And so we're going to finish this section. It's in our text here from chapter 18 all the way down through chapter verse, excuse me, verse 38, from verse 18 to verse 38. Now, you, do you need a chuckle real fast this morning? I, I, I originally said, I don't know if I'm going to do all of that in one setting. That's when you laugh. Okay, because um, that's like 20-something verses. I don't think I've ever preached 20-something verses ever in the course of my preaching. Um, so, in the process of trying to get there, I've decided I'm going to cut this in half. And so, we're going to uh, finish this next week, this larger section that wraps up chapter 9 of looking at these authenticating signs. Um, and what we have here is we have Jesus, in essence, over these next two weeks, just kind of fi finishing out another long day of ministry. 
of demonstrating his authority over, uh, we're going to see in the rest of this, over sickness, blindness, deafness, demons, and even death. Uh, Matthew, in, in essence, is just going to continue to add to a, an already long list of afflictions which have had to bow the knee to Christ and his authority, thus his lordship over all things in life. And at the end of this larger section, which we'll get to next week, we also are going to see it's, it's for the purpose of showing us something else about the person of Christ. It's going to show us something about God's kindness. It's going to show us a lot about his compassion on the plight of humanity who are afflicted. And we're going to see uh, this described very clearly in verse 36. It says that it is to those who are distressed and downcast, that they were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. These are the very people for whom Jesus has an eye toward. And then he tells his disciples, and again by application, I have to say he's telling us as well, he tells them that the harvest is plentiful, and yet the workers are few. And with the view, he, he tells them this with the view of sending them out. When we get to chapter 10, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to send his disciples out to do the ministry into the harvest, if you will. He's going to send them out to do the work of ministry, of becoming fishers of men. Remember earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 and verse 19, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 18, he calls four of his disciples to himself, and he says to them, verse 19, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So what we're seeing here in the course of the training of the 12 with these disciples is that not much has changed. Jesus is in the process of training them for what life is going to be like whenever he ascends and goes back to glory. That, that ministry is, is extremely difficult. It's busy. It's not all showy with smokes and mirrors and lights and singing and glory. It's oftentimes actual ministry is very difficult because it's in the lives of people who are hurting and we need to move to those people as Jesus did to do the work of ministry and to fish for men, meaning we share the gospel. We speak of the gospel of the kingdom. We speak of Christ. Amen? I really like the way R.T. France consolidates his thoughts on this section, chapters 8 and 9, in his commentary on Matthew. He said this, with, with this final triad of miracle stories, which we're going to look at over the next two weeks, Matthew brings to a close his comprehensive collage of authoritative activity of the Messiah in chapters 8 and 9, both in his Unquestioned power over a wide variety of threatening forces, natural and supernatural. And, and I really like that he, he, he dovetails this back in because we kind of had one sliver within this section. And, he says, in the uncompromising demand which he makes on those who are called to follow him. But the overriding note is not one of hard power but of deliverance and joy. As people are set free from danger, disease, demonic powers, and death, and called to share with Jesus in enjoying the new wine of the kingdom of heaven. That's really good. Let's get started. Let's look at verse 18 and 19 together. It says, while he was saying these things to them. Now, this, while he was saying things to them, refers us back to the previous context last week in the conversation that Jesus was having with John's disciples regarding fasting, where Jesus 
through the use of parables, taught them that the, the old life of the flesh and the new life of the spirit are totally incompatible. Now, that's a bit of a paraphrase. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's sermon on the new wine and old wine skin, you can go to the YouTube page and listen to that message. But Jesus was in essence saying, he's not just come to patch up something that's old because when you put something new on something old, it just makes it worse. He's coming to do a new thing, and the new thing that we know from Old Testament prophecy is a new covenant. He's come to establish a new covenant, and he does that at his death at the cross, the shedding of his blood, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we also know, notice it says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue official came and was bowing down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. We know from um, Mark chapter 5, verse 22, that this synagogue official right here is uh, an official by the name of Jairus. And Jairus seemingly, uh, obviously, is here convinced of Jesus' teaching. He must have been present uh, when Jesus was just having concluded the conversation with John's disciples about the new wine, old wineskins, etc. It seems that Jairus, having heard this teaching, became somewhat or convincingly convinced, you may say, that, um, that Jesus is indeed this bridegroom who's bringing new wine. And Jairus, it seems here, is exercising a faith in Jesus as that bridegroom, as the one that he made mention to John's disciples, the very language that John the Baptist had been sharing with them. And he came to believe that Jesus could actually bring his daughter back to life. And the reason this official here is significant, it seems, is that for the first time in Matthew's gospel, we have an official from the Jewish religious community, when put between a rock and a hard place, breaks protocol from his religious background and training, and it says here that he was bowing down before Jesus in full faith that he was able to raise his daughter back to life. And, and as a devout Jewish man who knew the law of God, it looks as if Jairus is perhaps believing similarly as Abraham of old did. We see here in Hebrews 11:9, Abraham considered that God's able to raise people even from the dead. I think that Jairus was somewhat familiar with Isaac, the promised child. Abraham raised the knife, seemed clearly willingly to slay his son in obedience to the command of God. He feared God more than his own flesh and more than the life of his son. And it says that he considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. This is dealing with Abraham and Isaac, and it seems perhaps that Jairus, who must have been somewhat familiar with this Old Testament story, obviously seems to be acting in very similar faith. And while it doesn't say this specifically about Jairus, one of the things that we know is that actions speak louder than words. And I'm not trying to put words in Jairus' mouth specifically, but without doubt, he believed that Jesus 
if he would but touch his daughter, that she would live. These were thoughts that he had and that he expressed. And Jairus' actions toward Jesus are a clear-breaking from his religious traditions and upbringing. I mean, number one, he's here bowing down before Jesus, which would potentially be a violation of the first commandment. I mean, he's at least treating Jesus as if Jesus is able to do what only God can do, raise people back to life. So at a minimum, bowing down before a man whom he believed had God-like attributes would be a significant breach from his religious traditions and upbringing. Secondly, we see that his request of Jesus of laying hands on a dead person would be in a direct violation of Old Testament purity laws, which at this point in Jairus' life seem, are seemingly not that important to him anymore. Old, old wine skin, old wine, new wine perhaps, mentality. And thirdly, the clear statement of faith that we see that if Jesus will do this, that his daughter will live. A potential recognition of deity as only God is the giver of life. So Jairus, having done all of this, and publicly, mind you, listen, Jairus made a decision that the only hope he had of saving his daughter rested in the hands of the man that his religious establishment ridiculed and daily grew to despise. He obviously did not care what his friends thought about him anymore, what his neighbors were thinking about him anymore, or his family, or his colleagues. Jairus clearly believed that Jesus could supernaturally heal his daughter. And so he approaches Jesus and makes the request. Again, allegorically speaking, Jairus, it seems, is understanding that the old wine of his religious tradition and past wasn't capable of meeting his current needs. And he was interested in this man bringing with him this new gospel of the kingdom, one whom John the Baptist had said he came as the forerunner for in fulfillment of Old Testament passages, which I'm sure many of them scoffed at from time to time, thinking surely this can't be the, the one. But he's now interested in this man who's brought this new message of hope, a new wineskin filled with new wine. And he's seeing the outpouring of this new wine as the crowds perpetually followed Jesus all over the place seeking his miraculous power. And as such, Jairus broke from his conventional religious norms to openly trust in Jesus to do for him what he knew that only God could do for him alone. So where that puts us with regard to Jairus and his thoughts about Jesus and deity at this point in the story, I don't know, but... Again, actions speak louder than words, and for this man to go public like this, he was one of the leaders of the synagogue. He was a very well-known commodity within his community, and he's doing something that was unmistakably a huge step of faith. Notice again there in verse 19 what happened next. It says, and Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples, rather than healing this girl, his daughter from a distance, as he had done with the centurion servant. Jesus is looking here, it seems, to make a significant inroad personally into the house of Jairus and those within this local community. I mean, remember, again, this is an official of the synagogue. 
Jairus was one of the main religious leaders within his community. And for Jairus to turn to Jesus for help, and for Jesus to come to his home and to bring a living hope as the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies is a really, really big deal. And Jesus, being the great evangelist, is wanting to capitalize on this great opportunity. And you may come across, this is just a little bit of a side note here, you may come across circumstances in your life where you recognize that your ability to speak hope and life into somebody's circumstance or their life or their, their or relationships or whatever it may be, not all circumstances present themselves with equal gravitas or equal weight. You got to know when it's time to go that extra mile, right? In doing the work of ministry, it seems that Jesus has a clear understanding of this. Here we have this, uh, this man who's a leader and Jesus is saying, I'm coming to your house today. Now, while Jesus was following him, there arose immediately another opportunity of ministry. They weren't going to let Jesus get away that quickly, right? I mean, we see here in verse 20, notice, a woman who's been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. Verse 21, for she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once, the woman was made well. Now, in the New American Standard here, it, it translates um, a, a, a word sozo for um, uh, belief into being well your 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 faith has has made you well it's 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 a the the belief that you demonstrated in coming to Jesus and the the courage that it took for you to act on such belief having heard what Jesus was saying we don't know exactly everything that she had heard all we know is that she seems to be in this broader crowd that's following Jesus and as Jesus was making his way to the home of Jairus, this woman who for 12 years was dealing with this hemorrhage, she sees her opportunity. Now, we need to just keep in mind briefly here about this woman. Uh, this hemorrhage issue had left this woman in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanliness for, it says here, for 12 years. Which means that she would have been shunned by every person in the Jewish community, including her family now, for 12 years. Unapproachable. Untouchable. And she would have been excluded from both the synagogue and temple sacrifices. So, while it's not exactly obvious from the text here explicitly, I think it's fair to say that this woman was very wearied. She was a very scorned woman who is in desperate need of new wine, this new wine that Jesus was offering. And we also know from the other synoptic gospels that both Mark and Luke, that, that this woman, that she had been to multiple doctors over these course, it seems, of these 12 years. And it specifically makes mention that her condition had only gotten worse. That as a result of seeking out for the help of doctors, the help of men, her condition got worse, not better. So this woman has been in desperate need for a very long time. 
try to walk at least two steps in her shoes and immediately you start f probably feeling depressed, right? I mean, it wouldn't take, would it take, would it take you 12 years to maybe reach a place of desperation with a, 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 a hemorrhage and a situation that left you perpetually on the outside is unclean within your community, your religious faith, and untouchable. She's been desperate for a long time, and when all else has failed her, along came Jesus. Isn't that the way it, it often goes? After we've made a mess of life, after we've made a mess of relationships with kids or spouses or neighbors or employers or whatever it may be, after we've made a mess of things and we've tried everything that we can, she went for 12 years looking for hope. She went from one doctor to the next doctor to the next doctor. Along comes Jesus. Listen, if you find yourself at a place similar to this woman here this morning, that would be some place where you're kind of at the end of your rope. Your resources for fixing self have kind of run out. Reach out to Jesus. All you need to do is touch but the hem of his garment with the kind of faith that this woman has right here. And he can begin a process in your life for the good. I've seen it happen in so many countless lives of people who finally reach the end of themselves and say, I need Jesus. Reach out to Jesus and hold on tight. He knows how to fix things. He knows how to fix hearts, broken hearts. He knows how to fix people, broken people. He knows how to fix relationships, broken relationships. We just need to have the faith of this downcast woman that we see here in Matthew chapter 9. Amen? Reach out to Jesus. She obviously, again, had been a part of this larger crowd that's been following Jesus around. We don't know for how long. She obviously was aware that Jesus had the ability to heal the sick. She'd probably seen this in other occasions. Having come to these conclusions, she made, her, she made her break from her own religious traditions and past. And she went, at, she went hard after Jesus. I imagine a woman that's been in a hemorrhage for 12 years was probably not the, 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 the fittest, the strongest, the ablest. And she thought, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, we see here in verse 21, if I can only touch his garment I will get well and notice what it says again right here in verse 21 I like this part right here for she was saying to herself and I let that settle in just a little bit this the usage of, of this verb was saying to herself the text doesn't say that she said to herself. It almost seems to indicate there's some sort of repetition in her thought process. She was, a little bit of a looser translation perhaps, she was perpetually saying, she continually kept saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, 
which perhaps indicates, and I don't know, I'm just thinking about kind of real human life here just for a second, not this woman's, but perhaps my own, that we sometimes we get to that place where we think if I would just do this, but we have a, maybe just a second of hesitation. I'm not saying the woman did, but I'm saying that perhaps I have and maybe some of you have. It, you know, and so we, we, we keep saying to ourselves, we repeat to ourselves, I, I know I need to reach out to to Jesus, I know I need to reach out to touch his garment, but there's, there's sometimes this bit of hesitation. But then we go back to it, and we might hesitate, and we, we kind of rethink. And re- it seems that this woman is reconditioning her mind towards something that she knows, she sees, she knows, she's heard of. She's seen the other people that have been blessed, and she gets to this point where she's utterly convinced, single-minded, if you will, in her pursuit of touching Jesus' garment to where she keeps telling herself, I know if I do this, I will get well. I've seen him do it here. I've seen him do it there. I saw him heal the leopard. I saw him do this. Wherever she had been and the thing, I've seen him do this. So my encouragement to you, brothers or sisters, this morning, if you have an issue that you've brought with you in life and perhaps you've seen how Jesus took care of another issue, another broken life, another broken relationship, whatever it may be, let me tell you, he can do the same for you. So reach out to Jesus. He can. He can bring hope. He can. He can bring healing exactly where it's needed. Isn't this good news? This is the gospel, the new wine of life with Jesus Christ. We also see from this text that this woman had no indication whatsoever of making a scene. As a matter of fact, it's clear that she was wanting to simply slip in behind Jesus, touch his cloak, get healed, and quickly slip away into the crowd to kind of do this as quietly as possible. Uh, but being perceptive of all things, and this, by the way, is, I think we're, maybe, I don't know, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but parents oftentimes say, hey, I got eyes in the back of my head, right? This would be like, Jesus is the ultimate, I got eyes in the back of my head. <laughs> kind of a, kind of a, a thing here. Um, Mark, in his gospel, when retelling this account, indicates well, he doesn't have eyes in the back of his head, but he's perceptive of when power left him. No, just this is the same story from Mark's gospel. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power, that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and was saying, who touched my garments? And his disciples were saying to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he was looking around to see the woman who had done this. Matthew doesn't give us nearly the detailed account of this occurrence that Mark does. But clearly Jesus wanted this distraught woman to know that she had been seen. This woman who was the untouchable woman for the past 12 years because of ceremonial uncleanliness laws that she was in violation of, she tried everything she could do to get healed. It wasn't happening. 
She thought, I'm just going to slip in and touch the garment, slip out, get healing. I know I'll be healed. Jesus wanted this distraught woman to know that she had been seen. I love that. Jesus pressed the issue knowing that healing power had flown through this woman's body to heal her. Jesus took time to stop. To let the least of these know that they matter to him. Isn't that beautiful? That's just truly a, a beautiful reality. There is no partiality with God. There's no partiality. And we also see here that Jesus knows how to distinguish between the touches of those in the crowd, of those naturally curious about what he's doing, and the touch of a woman like this who touched him with genuine need and in authentic faith. You see the crowds pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? <laughs> They're all touching you, but not like this woman did. And this is why I'm saying when you reach out to Jesus, we need but come to him with the kind of faith that this woman has. Not another curious touch, not another... I think he can fix me right here for this and I can then go about my, my business. No, Jesus, he's not in the business of just letting you use him as a rabbit's foot that you pull in and out of your pocket. And Jesus wants to slow down. He wants you to know that you have been seen and he wants you to know that when you reach out to him with authentic faith, knowing that he can in due time take care of whatever the circumstance that you may find yourself in, that he can and will see you to the very end. And Jesus turning, again verse 22, and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. This woman probably had been without courage for 12 years at least. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. I like the way MacArthur in his commentary makes a contrast between Jairus, the religious leader, this well-known person, this prominent figure in this woman who would have been a nothing in her community. The fact that Jesus ministered equally to the outcast woman and the leading elder of the synagogue certainly reveals his divine impartiality. He was not offended by the woman's taking hold of his tassel with her unclean hands. He did not resent her presuming to seek his help while he was engulfed by a demanding multitude and on his way to raise a young girl from her deathbed. No person in need ever interfered with Jesus' ministry because the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as he had just declared to the self-righteous Pharisees, he did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He came to seek and save sinners who knew they were sinners, and such persons have always been more likely to be the poor and insignificant of the world. Isn't that good to know? Well, hey, when I look around at us, we're not like, um, we're not like the mighty out there. <laughs> we're probably way more like this woman who's in great need. We don't have, we're not carrying large... Uh, responsibilities on our shoulders. We're not like a gyrus in this story. We're more like this woman who's in great need. And this is good to know that God has no partiality of people, no matter who you are, what you've done, 
When you come to faith, to, to Jesus with genuine faith, he sees and accepts you for exactly who you are. And then immediately, having finished the encounter with this woman, Matthew then turns back to the issue of Jairus' dead daughter. Notice this in verse 23. And when Jesus came into the official's house, so somewhere between this encounter, the procession has continued, he comes now into this official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. We see here that the mourners in this community have already arrived at the house to weep for and with the family of the dead girl, which again is a sure sign that this girl has actually died. They're, they've probably given her a, a good one over and they've had time to determine the, genu the genuineness of her death she just hadn't swooned here and Jesus somehow resuscitated a swoon girl no she was dead the mourners had already had time to show up the flute players already had time to show up and were playing by the time Jesus gets to this house and if you think about it each one of these people in this noisy crowd here these mourners, these flute players, uh, mourning here the death of Jairus' daughter, it would seem that each one of these individuals perhaps represent a challenge to Jairus. A challenge to his continued faith in and following of Jesus. Because when Jesus shows up, the religious community is already kind of turning against him. They were, he's doing things that are unconventional because he's the new wine guy. Is anybody here familiar with peer pressure? <laughs> it's a real deal, right? I mean, it's a real thing. Oh, I, I'd never, I'd, I'd never succumb to peer pressure. How about you? Ever? Well, I know I probably have, and probably the, the likes of you. Have. Jairus was not immune to peer pressure. People all over the world are not immune to peer pressure. These people would be representative of all sorts and all kinds of community peer pressure that would keep Jairus from really thinking much of Jesus or highly of Jesus, but yet Jesus here comes into his house and he sees all these mourners, all these individuals, family members, next-door neighbors, people that looked up to Jairus in the synagogue, etc., etc., etc. Listen, when you reach out to Jesus because you've reached the end of your rope, you're going to have all sorts of people in your life that are going to say you're absolutely out of your mind if you think that Jesus is the one to follow. They're going to try to convince you that just, well, just kind of keep him in your pocket like you had him in your pocket as a rabbit's foot. Just keep pulling him out as you need him and rub, and rub on, the, uh, on Jesus whenever you, when you feel like you, you, you need him most. And then, but, but put him back away. Because this community that you're moving into, they're not real big on Jesus. This community where you work, the community in which you live, the friends with, which, with whom and whom you hang with, they're not real big on talking Jesus talk. So just use him as you need him. Jairus, don't go, don't go off the rail. Don't go off the range here. You're going to have all kinds of people, peer pressure like these individuals probably would be representative in Jairus' life to try to prevent him from truly being a follower of Jesus, of truly seeking to obey Jesus in all aspects of their lives. Are you following me? They're everywhere. They're your neighbors, your coworkers. And these are the very people for whom Jesus has sent us to be fishers of men for. We have to have the courage to be able to say to people who are hurting and in need, Turn to Jesus. Let me tell you what he did for me and how he changed my life.
We have to have the courage. And we have individuals like this, like Jairus, different context, different circumstances, but we're going to have people, mourners in our life of different kinds that would try to keep us probably from being solid, steady followers of Christ, committed to a local church, loving his people, loving him. But, verse 25, 24, notice, here, here are these individuals. Jesus is saying, watch, leave. The girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Did I tell you that perhaps some of these uh, individuals in your life like this, they also might be a little mocking, a little laughful of your love for Jesus and really kind of clinging to that and believing that he is all that and a bag of chips? Leave. The girl's not died, and they began laughing at him. The reason they laughed was due to the fact that they knew the girl was dead, and so in essence, this laugh was a jeering, a mocking of Jesus for claiming something so outlandish. And here Jairus' uh, daughter is dead. Jesus telling these mourners and these flute players, go home, claiming the girl's just but asleep. And then in verse 25, it says, but when the crowds had been sent out, I think Jairus got involved. The text doesn't say, and Jairus showed up and got involved and booted everybody out of his house. And he said, I don't care what you think. I've reached a point in my life where your opinions don't matter to me anymore. I've seen that this man has some authority that can't be of earth, and it has to be from heaven. It doesn't, I'm just, I probably shouldn't be, you know. Let's just deal with what the text says. I can't, I just tend to think that probably Jairus, showed, the daddy has shown up. This is his daughter. I know something about dads and daughters. But when the crowd had been sent out coming in, he took her by the hand and the girl got up. And isn't it amazing how simply the miracle of raising this girl back to life is mentioned? I mean, it's just, it's just so casually and peacefully stated. As a, as a matter of fact, we see here that that uh, Jesus just says he took her by the hand and the girl got up. In our context, when somebody's claiming to do the miraculous, they're not sending people out. They want people to come in to see. They want people marveling over their ability to do things. Not Jesus. Matter of fact, in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, it seems there's only three disciples that were in there with him. In Jairus himself, I'd be five. And obviously the girl, those are the only ones that were indicated that were perhaps in the room. He sent everybody else away. He's not there trying to make much of some supernatural thing. We see, we see the very human touch. We see how Jesus desires to have... The human connection. He was one of us. He was made of flesh like us. He's been tempted and tried in all ways as us. And he takes this dead girl by the hand again, according to the old traditional ways. That would have been a ceremonial, unclean thing to do. But, but not when you bring new wine. Not when you're, new, when you're the new lawgiver. Just that he takes her by the hand and the girl gets up. This would seem would have to be without question the high mark of Jesus' miracles through Matthew's chapter 8 and 9. And in some ways, I read maybe about five commentaries, and each one of them tepidly talked about how this was indicative of a sort of resurrection 
that we're going to get more into in Matthew later, and Jesus is going to be claiming his own after death, his own resurrection. And so we have perhaps a form of a sort of the kind of resurrection, the kind of power of God that can raise people back from the dead. We'll probably get into more of that theological uh, idea maybe a little bit later in Matthew, not so much here, because I don't think that that's necessarily what seems to be the, the driving force of what's happening here as Matthew's recording this. I think he wants us to simply see that the, the, the God-man, the God who has left heaven, he loves his own. And you see this, this, this great miracle worker, this Jesus, whom these massive crowds are following, tenderly coming in and taking this small girl by the hand and exerting power. And it says, the girl got up. <laughs> I just, I love that. It's so simple. And I think it's, it, it, it kind of brings a hush almost over the text, doesn't it? It almost just brings a hush over the text. Do you not almost feel like you need to kind of just like almost be still and know that he is God? It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. This man right here, this Jesus right here in our text is the same Jesus that's alive today who's ready to meet you in your greatest time of need right now. Let him take your hand. Let him take your hand. Cast your cares on him. I'm not saying that he's going to miraculously... This context is way different than the context of our lives. Put your hand. Let him take your hand. Start demonstrating acts of faith like the woman. Know, believe, have faith. Give Jesus your life. See what he can make of it from now until the time you get to eternity. I promise you, he won't let you down. He'll never let you down. In verse 26, we're going to end right here. And this news spread throughout all the land. You know, I was thinking about this statement. It seems that this is the earliest recorded statement of something in the news cycle going viral. I don't think some of y'all caught that. I'm still waking you up from the recognition that he has got to do. The first recorded statement of something in the news cycle going viral. I, I like that. And this news spread throughout all that land. They, they didn't have, you know, face me, text points, all this stuff. I'm purposely misrepresenting these names because I don't know them. Um, but news traveled slowly, but let me tell you, people were talking. Let Jesus change your life. People are still talking. The news of Jesus not only went all throughout that land, it's, it's circumvented this entire globe. And there's no other God but Jesus. We're going to finish this section next week, so I'm not going to really wrap you up and tie you up just yet. There's some really great application we're going to get to. We've got to finish this section. It's, it's a large section here. But let me encourage you, as I have been encouraging you, if you've come here this morning and you've got a need like this woman and you've reached the end of your rope, reach out to Jesus. He's not going to let you secretly touch the hem of his garment. He's going to want, to know, he's going to want you to know that you've been seen and he's going to want you to give him the praise for the outcomes of how he does ultimately change your life. So be ready for that. Let's pray.